James Meadway, thank you very much for joining us on Scottonomics. A former advisor to Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell and currently director at the Progressive Economy Forum. So thanks very much for joining us. So first thing I'd like to ask you, does the government tax to spend? Does the government tax to spend? No, not really. Um, that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to levy taxes or that taxes don't matter. But if the government wants to spend, it can just spend. Uh, there's often confusion about this. Uh, and some people get very excited when they realise the government can just sort of spend money uh, without thinking through what the next round of consequences from that are. But at least as a, as a sort of formal statement about how the world is, the government doesn't need to, to tax to spend. It can just spend money. Do banks only lend out deposits? Uh, no, bank, bank, banks never, I mean, look, modern banks never lend out deposits. Uh, they, they, the, the, the secret to a bank is that it has deposits as, uh, as a sort of guarantee of its security and stability and as something in emergency. It doesn't actually need the deposit to lend out. It doesn't take the money held in a vault somewhere and hand it over to someone else. That if you go to a bank and ask for a loan, what the bank does is create that loan and its uh, balance sheet and then wait for you to repay it back, at which point the entire operation kind of makes sense. The two sides of the balance sheet add up. There's an asset, which it's created for the bank, which is the loan it's given to you. There's a liability, which is the deposit it's creating its, its bank account, but it's not actually lending out somebody else's deposit when you earn us for a loan. Did the Bank of England under Labour have a full employment mandate? Uh, no, it's never had a full employment mandate. I mean, it's had the, the only mandate it had when, which was written and then adjusted slightly in the years since, but it was first written in 1997 when Gordon Brown as Chancellor on pretty much his second day in the job or really very early on said, right, we're going to make the Bank of England independent. Um, it's sort of independent in some senses. And, and that's really saying that instead of he as Chancellor and perhaps advised by people would get to set uh, the Bank of England's primary sort of monetary policy tool, which is the interest rate it charges on deposits that other banks make with it. This is the, the base rate, often just referred to as the interest rate. Uh, that The Bank of England would set that, and he'll try and set it according to a mandate that the government would give the Bank of England. That mandate says you have to try and keep inflation to about 2%, exactly 2%. Uh, and this mandate, there's no full employment reference there. The Federal Reserve has a kind of mandate to say, okay, we should try and create employment as well. But it's never existed for the Bank of England. And um, are you in favour of more subsidiarity for the United Kingdom? Subsidiarity, the subsidiarity in the sense of just more power for different regional bodies, yes, as a rule. Uh, um, particularly, I mean, I realise we're on a, a sort of Scottish broadcast here, but particularly inside of England, where, where there's this sort of enormous gap between Westminster government and then really not much else at all and then a scattering of local authorities into which there are now some mayors with fairly limited powers themselves that, that if you're you know you're Andy Burnham up in Greater Manchester or, or Jamie Driscoll in, in the northeast you, you have some things you can do and a lot of what you can do is make a bit of noise I mean we saw that in, in 2021 I think Andy Burnham was very effective at arguing the case for, for the northwest during the coronavirus, but your actual power is really limited. Nothing like what you get if you're, you know, the Welsh government or the Scottish government, for example. Both of which should have more powers as well, by the way. Are you in favour of Scottish independence? Or I could phrase it: If you were Scottish, would you be in favour of Scottish? Oh, God, that's a that's, that's an interesting one. It's it's. I always think it's a bit difficult to comment that if you if you've got a big campaign for Scottish independence and and that might be something that you could support elsewhere. Uh, I don't think there's any reason for anyone in England to say, no, you can't have a referendum on Scottish independence. If people in Scotland want a referendum on Scottish independence, they can have one. And that means also if they want to vote for independence, uh, that's a, a good reason to do it. What's striking at the minute is, is that uh, I strongly suspect 
that, okay, the Conservative government doesn't says it doesn't want Scottish independence, uh, and the SNP government says it does, but their actual enthusiasm for doing this, uh, I detect, is, is waning over time. That, that's, you know, it's something to talk about at some point in the future. It's not something to deliver right now. And, and I don't know how long they'll be able to manage that, mm. that balance between something, eventually one day it'll happen in some form, and actually trying to deliver it right now. Yeah, that's the political dyna dynamic to it, isn't it? But your thoughts, if you were Scottish, would you be in favour of Scottish independence? I'd be strongly tempted, and I think people who have uh, who try and support the union have a real job of work in their hands to to make the case for it by this point. Uh, and and it's underplayed, um, particularly in Westminster, just that. You know, there's a kind of there's a real sense of many many different things going on there. Just a sort of basic sort of national identity thing, the sense of democracy that's lacking, the idea that you could do something different if freed from what often looks like, and it's not unreasonable to view it like this. A complete shit show taking place uh, in Westminster. I mean, that's not a driver just in Scotland. You see the same thing happening in Wales. You can see the same thing happening in those bits of England that we were just talking about, where you, know, you can look at whoever it is who's now the prime minister, and he's been a Tory for a long period of time, and it's currently. By Boris Johnson, and you can look at the, the the sort of the succession of minor or even major catastrophes that happened there, and think that this is a bigger problem than just changing the government. This is an institutional setup problem, and that would lead you towards saying, well, devolution inside of England would be a very good idea too. And and, and if Scotland was independent, um, do you think it would be a successful, normal, well-functioning European economy like Finland, Denmark, or Norway? But that, that would be the aspiration. There'll be, there'll be, there's no reason on paper why it shouldn't be. It's just that the process of actually getting there is, is hard. And I think that's on the people supporting independence side to say how it would happen. Because what you get at the minute is a lot of sort of dancing around some sets of issues about, OK, we'd all like to be Finland. I mean, you know, if you say, you say, what would an independent Scotland be like? And everyone says Finland or Norway or Sweden or something, which is not unreasonable. Right. <laughs> to think that this is possible is similar population, similar, you know, these are all sort of developed economies. There's lots and lots of things going on there. There's industry in Scotland. There's lots of potential. The Scottish government talks all of this up. You could see plausibly how you might get there. And much more egalitarian, much better public services, all this sort of thing. It's just the process of getting there. Once you start thinking, okay, well, what kind of currency are you going to use? What are you going to do about uh, Scotland's bank liabilities? What are you going to do about the the debt, the government debt that that you know, as part of the UK exists, potentially exists for Scotland? Of course, the position the SNP is to get rid of all of it. Would the British government let you do that? Potentially not. And so, so there's there's these huge set of complications where actually what the SNP in particular tries to present as a break that will be quite easy, and then you just sort of turn into Finland in twenty years' time is actually going to involve a real rupture and a break with how the United Kingdom operates and therefore how Scotland operates. And that break is going to be more radical than anything the SNP leadership likes to talk about, to the extent that he actually, as I said, really wants Scottish independence in any kind of useful day-to-day -day sense. I don't, I don't view it for them it is something as anything other than a sort of aspiration you'll get to eventually rather than like how we're making this happen right now. That's a really good summary and I think what we've tried to get away from in Scotland and on Scotonomics is this kind of polarised debate yeah. that as soon as Scotland leaves the United Kingdom it's done for because we're taking all of the oil and all of the whiskey and all of the salmon and all the renewables and this idea that our UK is done for but on the other side you've got this idea that if Scotland becomes independent it's some kind of economic basket case and it just won't survive and it'll come back begging to Westminster again. And we're really trying to say to people that 
there's no evidence for either of those things happening. What the evidence points to is a continued state of our UK doing fine and an independent Scotland doing fine. And that's where we're trying to kind of narrow that debate. And as you've said there, James, I think it's then it becomes more about how do you become the type of successful country you want to be? And what's the process rather than justifying that you will be that type of country? I mean, some, some of it is, for instance, you need to get into a more serious conversation about the distribution of wealth income in Scotland, that, that, that you don't get to be Finland, given the resources that you have at hand. I mean, you don't get to be Finland for a whole load of reasons, but at least part of that is, well, then your tax system is going to have to look different, that you're going to have to do something about inequality in Scotland, uh, put it like that, that you're going to have to try and raise money from somewhere, that there may, depending on currency arrangements, be some... Uh, capacity for for this hypothetical independent uh, Scottish government to to try and raise money to borrow money and this sort of thing, but there may actually be significant limitations on its capacity to do that. That you know, a new Scottish currency would be something that exists out in the world with loads and loads of other currencies. There's no guarantee that that its value will be sustained in that world. It's not actually an easy thing to manage an independent currency in a world with lots of different competing currencies. Do you think that China's relationship with uh, Russia could be key to ending the war? I, I think so. I have written this, and it's a bit it's a bit speculative, and and there's sort of backwards and forwards about how important this relationship really is. The, the the key to it at the minute looks like something like that. If you have pretty effective, not completely effective, sanctions applied to Russia uh, against its central bank, that the Russian central bank has lots of assets it can't really touch because all the other banks in the world are saying, well, you're not going to be able to sell your dollar holdings or euro holdings because you're sanctioned. That means you can't buy rubles, you can't keep the price of ruble up, you can't intervene in the economy in a way that a central bank often would. Um, that's been pretty effective. It's helped spark these sort of small bank runs across Russia. It's, it's meant that the price of the ruble has collapsed. But China uh, isn't sanctioned in that way, isn't part of these sanctions. And that bit of Russia's reserves that is Chinese it can still use. Now, whether China chooses to use them is another thing. China does buy uh, some of its uh, oil and gas from Russia, but it's only 5% of its domestic demand. In Europe, it's about 40% of gas comes from, from Russia. So they have, if you like, a certain amount of leverage there if they want to use it. So they're in a relatively sort of kind of powerful position in the sense of having a range of options that might be denied to the EU in the most obvious instance where you like there's an obvious reason why you can't cut off Russia's gas. It's because your lights go out, you can't eat your houses pro properly, prices spike, all this sort of thing. Um, so that, that doesn't apply to China in the same way. That gives it a certain amount of leverage. The fact that the Russian central bank still has these Chinese assets gives it a certain amount of leverage. There's a kind of non-dollar global economy that's coming into existence, or at least a regional economy, that Russia's somewhat integrated into. And to the extent that it's integrated into this and not tied into the dollar economy, it has a bit more freedom of manoeuvre, and therefore China has a degree of leverage uh, over Russia. Now, whether it chooses to apply it or not is a whole set of different, not necessarily directly economic considerations, but it is potentially in a, in a in quite a, a powerful position in, in the current uh, in the current situation. Now, I'd like to know a little bit more about your views and um, the, the the idea of a, a more progressive economy. And I wanted mm -hmm. to kind of start with a, a direct question: What's um, how do we deal with the cost of living crisis that we've got at the moment, and what's causing it? Well, the, the first bit—it's sometimes easier to start with what isn't causing it, but sometimes gets talked up. I mean, people would have seen the uh, comments by Andrew Bailey. 
governor of the Bank of England, I mean, probably about a month ago now, which which were quite, I mean, they, they sort of did, in some ways, did us all a favour in just kind of clarifying the argument and making it obvious that this wasn't an argument that was going to work, when he said, following the little economic model in his head, that inflation is going up, that means people should ask for less pay rises, right? If you're going to get one at all, by the way. I mean, there's this a kind of real sort of 1970s mentality here where it's like you as a worker can, in your strong union, can just go off to your boss and demand a pay rise, right? Like, that applies to almost no one in the private sector. Maybe in the public sector, it's a bit better. There are stronger unions, more collective bargaining. Private sector in Britain right now just doesn't really happen like this. You know, mm. you get what you're given. You can argue a little bit more in some parts of the economy, but mostly you get what you're given. But even if that was the case, the inflation we're getting now isn't coming from what's happening inside of Britain. It's not coming. Uh, if you look at like 10 years of basically you know, flat or falling real wages, uh, inflation isn't being driven by massive increases in wages that are forcing these poor firms to have to put their prices. It's coming because the price of gas that we're buying mostly from Qatar uh, or Norway for that matter has gone through the, the roof. That has nothing to do with how much you're paying people in Britain. The price of food is going up because there's a drought in, uh, or rather a frost in Brazil and, and drought and, and fires in Canada. Uh, and this is even before, by the way, we get to you know, the fact that Russia and UK produce what, 40% of the world's wheat exports, right? So, so there's going to be some disruption there. None of this has anything to do with how much you're paying nurses or teachers. So, so how much you pay people in this country does not affect the international price of gas or wheat or coffee or a whole load of other things we buy from the rest of the world. And that's where the inflation is coming from, uh, primarily uh, at this point in time. Um, so, so the solutions to that, to me, I mean, the most obvious one is first, everyone should get to pay, well, not, maybe not everyone, I mean, maybe not Andrew Bailey, right, who earns half a million pounds a year. But most people should be getting a pay rise. And given that inflation... And the official measure is about 5.5%. I mean, by the way, in reality, uh, most people are probably going to experience a rate of inflation above that because that, that's an average number, which is supposed to summarise lots and lots of different and prices. of course, it's, rel exactly. it's relative, isn't it? It might be 10% so, for you, it might be 2% yeah, for someone exactly. else. Exactly. So, so particularly if you spend a large part of your income on food, which would usually... Yeah, Typically, the poorer you are, the more of what you earn you have to spend on essentials like food and heating your house. Your personal rate of inflation will be way above that. But in any case, everybody in work should be getting at least a 5.5% pay rise, at least. And actually, it should be more than that to compensate for the fact you had 10 years of flat real wages and, by the way, two years of a, of a sort of horrible pandemic at the end of it. So everyone should be getting more than 5.5%, one part of it. The other bit of it is that at least some of these price rises are directly politically determined. The, the reason, for instance, that people are going to be seeing a, what, 56% rise in their, typically in their heating bills, uh, energy bills from April, is because Ofgem, which is a government institution, decided that it was going to move the cap on those energy bills up that much. So basically everyone's going to be paying you know, 700 pounds more a year, I think it's a sort of average uh, increase in the bill, which is a huge sum on top of everything else, by the way. In France, it's 4%. And the reason it's 4% in France is not because of some magic thing about the French economy. I mean, there are differences, more energy from nuclear power. But the huge gap is explained by the French government saying, we're going to cap this at 4%. And the British government saying, no cap, we don't care. Right? Or we don't care if it rises massively. This is politically determined. If the government wanted to stop that, it could. And if it wanted to force the costs of that not onto households, but elsewhere in the system, because the price of gas internationally has gone up, but you can protect households from that. You just have to say to someone else, you're going to carry the cap. And when you see BP and Shell 
between them making £40 billion profit last year. And that is going to go up and up and up this year because the price of oil and gas is going up and up and up. That's where you should be squeezing. You know, squeeze those enormous profits rather than say to every household in the country, sorry, chaps and, and everyone, you're going to be absolutely screwed. It's, it, it's, it's a political decision to do this, that where you land the cost of all this. Mm. Well, but before we ask the second part of that question, which is what will we do about it? I just wanted to remind you um, that Andrew Bailey, it wasn't just what he said. It wasn't what he, it was what he didn't say. And if he thinks that it's caused by the inflation is caused by there being too much money in the economy, he didn't say to sh uh, companies to reduce their dividend payments this year or companies to not pay their bonuses. He said that workers should, should ask for less uh, or no pay rise this year. And I think that is fundamental problem that we have with central with central banks that there is that, that, that attitude so would you agree that inflation also wasn't caused by um, the huge amount of um, spending that the government put into the economy um, over and during covid i'd say that i mean there's a couple of things going on there because this is this is quite i mean this is a very sort of old argument for why does inflation happen well there's too much money being issued government has borrowed too much uh, printed too much money Money in the well, modern form, old but still, old but still current and it doesn't really work. I mean, it doesn't really work. Well, just take the last ten years that we've had since early two thousand nine in Britain, um, something around eight hundred and fifty billion pounds worth of quantitative easing. Right, so that's money that the Bank of England has electronically created. It's a bank, and as I said, banks can create money. Central Bank, Bank of England can do this. That they've then handed out to major financial institutions in return for buying effectively government debt. I mean, that's the operation. So basically, it's a huge amount of new money that's moved into the system. Over that 10 years, inflation has variously been really quite high, about the same level as now, or it's fallen so much that it's actually been negative for a while, or it's been somewhere around the 2% target. The amount of money that's been created by QE doesn't have any impact. So when you had, for instance, the Bank of England, when coronavirus uh, broke out, created a huge amount of additional QE, another 400 billion or so and the 400 billion that was already there. Yes, it's a large amount of money. No, it doesn't necessarily feed directly into rising prices. And the reason that happens is because the money that's being created is not necessarily immediately being spent by anyone who gets it. That the operation of QE in particular has seen asset prices rise. So it's helped support rising property prices, which is massively to the disadvantage of anybody who doesn't own a home. Uh, and may not necessarily be that great for people to do if they have children who want to buy a house and that sort of thing. So it's, it's, but it's greatly to the advantage if you're speculating in, in London property, for example, right? So it's making rich people richer. That's the impact of QE. It hasn't had much impact on wider prices because that money isn't feeding into the rest of the economy. And of the QE that was created over the last year, some of it went into the rest of the economy, but it's compensated for the fact you had a lockdown and huge amount of activity just disappeared. It went to people on furlough, for instance. And that's just compensating the fact you're closing down great chunks of the economy. It's not going to add to inflation. It's compensation for something else. So I don't buy the story. It can seem a bit superficially appealing that you've got all this new money and therefore inflation goes up. Inflation we're getting now is driven by COVID, you know, the effect of the supply chain disruption for the two years that you had lockdowns and shutdowns and everything else happening. That's still playing out. You then have uh, these sort of natural disasters, which I, I think is a completely underrated part of what's happening at the minute. That if you have regular increasing extreme weather of droughts and floods and wildfires and all the rest of it, it's not just food by it that gets affected, it's semiconductor production 
heavily reliant on huge amounts of water. There's a drought in Taiwan. It started to impact semiconductor production. It's feeding into the shortage of semiconductor chips that, that you've seen over the last 18 months or so. So that starts to turn into rising prices. These are all big uh, disruptive events that have very little to do with how much money you're printing or how much you're paying people. And of course, the third one that's now coming is, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is going to have this, and it's already having this enormous impact on the, on the global economy, largely because those two countries between them are, are huge suppliers of lots and lots of basic, pretty essential commodities in one form or another. And um, we mentioned a little bit there around that no one's had a, a pay increase, but we mm -hmm. kind of mainly focused on inflation and costs. Could we go back to that idea that yes. to solve a cost of living crisis, you spend less or you earn more? Um, would that what would what would be you kind of your view on on where we are as a society in terms of the income that most people are earning through wages, and what can we do to increase that if we should increase it? I mean, the, the sort of big picture on this is that the, the slice of the economic pie that is going to people who work has been shrinking for a long period of time. So, so if you take GDP, which is a bad measure in lots of different ways, but it gives you a good indicator of how big the economy is. If you take the share of GDP that's going to, to wages, you know, it peaks in the 1970s at something approaching 60% or so going to, going to work, going to wages and salaries. It's, it's now down well, well below that. It's down you know, approaching sort of 40% at that kind of level, depending on which figures you use for this. And it's been declining for a period of time. So, so the share of national income that's, that is actually produced by people who work, that's actually going back to them before wages and salaries has been reduced. So one of the things you want to do if you take the really big picture is increase that share. So you don't just want to say, uh, let's grow the economy. You want a redistribution in terms of the size of the slice that people are getting. And that's putting more money in people's pockets. That starts to address the standard of living crisis that they're starting to see already. There's a number of ways you could achieve this. I mean, one is to push up seriously the minimum wage, that a big increase in the minimum wage over and above what is it now? It's about £9.80 an hour or so. It's supposed to be £10 an hour at some point. Now, given the current rate of inflation, it should already be moving above that. But a serious increase in minimum wage would lift a lot of people out of the kind of poverty wages they're in, increase the size of the economic pie going to people who work, which is a, a fair redistribution, by the way. Incidentally, I mean, profits, certainly money terms, are pretty much at record levels. Right? It's not like there's no, you mentioned this, it's not like there's no money out there. It's just uh, apparently we can't touch this and we have to sort of scrabble around over whatever's left in the economic pie that's been allocated to, to workers. And it's actually, no, let's increase the size of the pie. Another one would be to, to just have stronger trade unions, more collective bargaining. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but as things stand, especially in the private sector, with union membership, it's down to, what, 15% or so? And, and all that, by the way, a great chunk of it is, is former nationalised industry. So, so the actual private sector has very, very low rates of unionisation. Now, there are some promising signs, and this is one of the sort of side effects of COVID, that this might be picking up. For the last few years, actually, predating COVID, union membership has been picking up. There are some signs that people are winning really big pay rises where they've been able to use a bit of leverage. You know, lorry drivers has been the, the most obvious example, but, but some hospitality workers, for example. Um, and where they've been able to use that leverage and start to pull back start to win back some power in the workplace and therefore win uh, more, fundamentally, more money for them. So, you know, what people, I think, are, are entitled to after years and years of this squeeze. So that, that's the basics of how you make it happen. And I think we can see that. I think a lot of jobs in the economy have got so bad. I'm thinking of hospitality jobs. Yeah. And there's been a few successes in Scotland where groups of uh, hospitality workers have got together and have forced their employees to, you know, things like give them their tips 
that are actually being paid or or give them notice on their shifts. But I do think that it's, it's probably cyclical. The jobs get so bad that unionism yeah. becomes something that you have to do just simply to be, you know, to protect the basics um, of, of your livelihood. And I think we've got to that point with a lot of sectors in the economy that it really is that bad. I, I hope so. Um, I mean, my, my slightly more uh, despairing view of this is, is that historically unionization happens because unions are already there, right? If you see what I mean, that, that because an organization has been built, it's easier to recruit more people into it. And that's how unions have grown over time. So they're very, very sickly. Like you take the great run from really when they became sort of properly legalized is what the 1860s, 1870s uh, in this country. I mean, there's still serious restrictions right the way through to the, God, all the way through to the 1940s really. But um, there's this sort of cyclical pattern to their growth, which is determined by whether or not people go out and organize unions. So although, you know, if you're sort of politically inclined and on the left, it may well be quite obvious to you that you go off and join a union if you're in a workplace. For great numbers of people out there, I think particularly for sort of you know, younger generations who've grown up in a world where unions just aren't a feature of their lives, that if, if union membership in the private sector is that low, yeah, and, and there are surveys on this that most people that work in the private sector are in a workplace without a single union member. So it doesn't even necessarily occur to people that joining a union is what needs to happen. So what should happen is unions themselves need to take the big resources they have and really push at organising on the ground, right? which is starting to happen, actually, in fairness. Um, you know, United is making a big show of doing this with their, their new general secretary, so they hope they follow through. Some of the smaller, much smaller unions, the IWGB and others, uh, then uh, are already sort of starting to push this because there's an opportunity for it now. I mean, like I mentioned, one of the sort of after effects of COVID has been this, what seems to be a kind of tightening of the labour market. In other words, there's a bit more leverage people have because it, for all sorts of reasons, there's, there's fewer other workers around to sort of compete for jobs and to compete for pay. Right? So it's a bit of leverage and people should use that and unions should be getting out there right now and demanding uh, that, that they take more. And that should happen whatever else happens with war, with inflation, with all of these things. It is absolutely right and fair and just for people to say after a decade of declining real wages, people deserve to be paid more. There's nothing wrong with that argument. And, and the various sort of excuses to why this shouldn't happen, I, I don't think count for anything. Unions are such an amazing thing that so many young people who have come into the workplace have never heard of it. Yeah. And they almost can't believe that there is such a thing that will help them get better conditions and better uh, and better wages because they've never heard of it before. Yeah. It's been so long since it's been a, a big part. Right. And obviously when we were growing up, unions and the power of unions was was it was, was kind of ubiquitous in political and economic commentary but that's disappeared over the last 20 years i just wanted to talk about um unionization in the private yeah. sector it's really really weak here and uh, you know i lived in the netherlands it's much stronger over there yeah. the, the, the catering uh, is called the horeca and it's uh, it's very strongly represented whereas you know i've i've worked in lots of um, hospitality here and it's there's just it's just non-existent. Um, I also worked for a well-known bookstore, and um, I was a member of USDA, and I think right. I was the only person who was a member yeah. of USDA. And when the manager was being ho hoisted over the coals, it was me he asked to sit with uh -huh. him, but he wasn't a member, you know. So I, I think there was also a reluctance to um, imagine that you would yeah. withdraw your labour because obviously you need to save to do that. You need to have savings yeah. to do. With 
withdraw your labor. And I think when you're being paid poorly, it's very difficult to save that kind of money as well, you know, and maybe have a holiday to get away from the very stressful job yeah. that's uh, demanding lots of hours of you and not paying you that very well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and combine that with the, just this, this, I think, uh, a real disintegration of the culture of unionism. That, that if you enter, you know, I said, if you're, if you're young and just entering the, the workplace in the last you know, 10 years, 15 years or so, I mean, much longer, you said 20, and it probably is about 20 years. It's just like you are not going somewhere where there's a bunch of other people who are in a union or somebody you know is in the union or it's obvious that unions are doing anything much. I mean, they exist quite robustly in the public sector. It's about two-thirds of public sector workers are in a union, but you know, that's not like two-thirds of all workers. That's two-thirds of people in the public sector. That's a clear minority of workers. And even there, there are problems with recruiting younger people who go into the public sector to the unions. So, so this, is, this looks like, you know, on paper, there's, what, six million, six and a half million union members in the country, or just in TUC-affiliated unions at least. So it's substantial. But it's kind of, it's not quite a Potemkin village situation, but, but unless that starts to turn into recruiting younger people and actually winning visibly for people, like being able to say, this is why you should join. And that's a fairly hard-nosed, self-interested thing. You join a union, not out of the good of your heart. Ultimately, you join it because it's good for you. And yes, there's a collective self-interest here, but it's still kind of a self-interest. Unless we start to win that, it, it, there's a real danger that unions just ossify entirely into something that somewhat older public sector workers do. I mean, you can see it happening already. Somewhat older public sector workers do. That's who they look out for. That's who they speak for. And everybody else is just left to their own devices. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to go back mm. to central banks. You know, do you think that they're functioning appropriately? Do you think they should do more? I mean, also listen to central bankers as well. You know, they tend to feel that the politicians expect them to solve all of their the, the, the fiscal problems that they should yeah. be dealing with. Do you think central banks, I mean, certainly Andrew Bailey, um, you know, got a lot of pelters, as he should have, to, to suggest that other people who are not on half a million pounds a year should not ask for pay rises. But I mean, apart from that, um, in general, do you think they should function differently? Generally speaking, yes. I mean, it depends on where you look and, and what the central bank bank is doing. There are some variations in, in how these things operate. Increasingly, actually, for, for the period since the crash, there's been a lot more sort of range of what central banks do uh, across the world. In the case of the Bank of England, it has really quite a limited mandate. And you might want to think about, well, perhaps you could write some other things into that. I mean, you mentioned full employment. Uh, you might also want to think about, well, are there things that the Bank of England could do where, and this is something that the actually People's Bank of China doing it, is saying, well, we can make cheaper loans to green investments. So you quite deliberately start to try and steer what you're doing uh, in that direction. Probably the best way to do this is actually to have the central bank give that money to some other institution with which knows a bit better how to make this investment work. So you set up something like a national investment bank or regional uh, investment banks to make that happen. But, but in principle, there's no reason why you couldn't do that. I mean, the other one that, that the... I think it's a mistake for the Bank of England to do this because I think QE over the last 10 years has been incredibly distorted in how it's actually played out. I mean, you touched on this. What's happened in practice is that whilst you have austerity, which is now sort of ground to a halt in the form of it was taking under George Osborne as Chancellor, um, that when you had austerity, which is sucking demand out of the economy because you're implementing all these big cuts, you had the Bank of England trying to squeeze demand back in through QE. It was just printing money, trying to prop up demand. And the result of that is that you compensate for austerity. You make austerity easier economically. 
that instead of you doing austerity in a weak economy, which by rights should lead to your economy getting weaker and weaker and you go back into recession, the QE that you're doing with its limited but nonetheless real impact on demand means that you can do austerity at the same time. So in other words, it plays a part in how the economy and society has been reshaped the last 10 years and not in a good way, in a much more unequal way. Because as mentioned, one of the impacts of QE is to drive up asset prices. If you push up asset prices, people who own assets, particularly people who own lots of assets, get a lot richer. And that's what QE has done. So, so this impact of the whole thing is, is really quite unjust. Almost certainly it's played out in the last few years as we've expanded QE uh, during coronavirus. And, but the Bank of England's really attached to it because, and Andrew Bailey, as he says it himself, is really attached to it because they see it as an essential prop for financial stability. Financial markets really like QE. And if you talk about, well, maybe we should move away from this and try and do something different or change how we do QE, perhaps we shouldn't just be buying government debt. We can think about trying to invest it, as the European Central Bank is now doing, by the way, in the European Investment Bank, that you're going to take this money and use it for different purposes and just basically buying financial assets of certain kinds. Uh, that panics financial markets, and we don't want that to happen, so we have to just keep the QE in place. And, and you can see this then informs the Bank of England's response to inflation, which is a sort of classic, uh, if all you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail, which is go, they can't really do very much, so they're just going to jam up interest rates and hope for the best. I mean, that's what it boils down to. Now, as I said, if you've got inflation coming from abroad because the price of gas has gone up, food has gone up, all of these things are going up, you're changing the interest rates. It's like you're trying to change wages. It's going to have absolutely no impact whatsoever on all this imported inflation. It's just I, I, when I, the line manager, no matter what you would give her, she would make changes to it. She would circle half a dozen things with a red pen because she wanted to be seen to be doing something yeah. to justify her position. And that's what I think is happening at the Bank of England. Exactly there's exactly egos, there's certainly egos there, but there's also there, well, we have to do something. This, yeah. is, this is what we'll do to make a difference. It's, it's, it gets labelled as the bank's credibility, that it has to look credible in the eyes of everybody who's trading money and all the different sort of financial instruments out there. If it doesn't look credible, it won't believe any promises it makes, and that undermines its capacity to intervene in the economy, and therefore terrible things will happen. By, you know, the pound will collapse in value because everybody's running out uh, trying to sell it because they don't believe the bank will anymore. All sorts of sort of doom scenarios that play out. So it has to look like it's doing something. So it sort of nibbles away at interest rates, knowing full well it's going to make very little difference other than signalling it's still there and trying to do something. Uh, and, that, and that's it. You, we, you can do better than this, right? You could have a government that was going to do a lot more fiscal policy, for example, and was a bit more serious about redistributing to workers, basically, from people who own wealth to workers. Now, this Tory government isn't particularly inclined to do that you know, for fairly obvious uh, political reasons. The Bank of England and other central banks as well have a policy, the Nairu, which is... Uh, mm saying it's okay to have 3% of your population unemployed because they're being paid to keep inflation down. Um, do you think that they should just get rid of that policy? I, I don't I don't think Naira is a, a policy as much as a sort of description of, of how the world is assumed to work in, in these sort of central bank models. There are limits to what central banks can do. That If the central bank said, any central bank says, we will have full employment, there, there are kind of hard limits to being able to achieve that, which, which is becoming more apparent at the minute. So one of them, the big one really, is what's happened over the last few years, particularly with COVID, but then as I mentioned, this sort of environmental instability that's creeping into everything, is disruptions to the supply of goods and services in the economy. COVID is a huge disruption to supply, because basically you say to a bunch of people, you can't do your work anymore, you're going to have to sit at home. Now, if your central bank is trying to concentrate and changing demand, 
to create full employment, but you're also saying, well, there's a real problem with supply, that isn't necessarily going to turn into more jobs for people. And beyond that, I think there's a, there's a bit of a question here about, I mean, look, we actually have pretty low unemployment right now. There are some weird things happening. Like one of the reasons here and in the US in particular, that you have these tight labor markets, that you have what's, at least in some places, where you have suddenly there's more demand for certain kinds of work. You know, hospitality has been quite a, an obvious example, lorry driving even more obvious over the last year or so, because there's, 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 there's a limitation on the supply of labor or something. Some of the reason that's happened is because a whole load of people have, if you take last summer, more people quit their jobs uh, than ever before since ONS, the official records began, right? There's 900,000 people just lost their job, got another one. The Great Resignation. That's one part of it. The other part is loads of people just took early retirement. I mean, the, the, why is there a lorry driver shortage? Because it seems, at least part of it, is under COVID. A load of people just said, you know what, I don't necessarily want to carry on driving a lorry all day long for the rest of for the next 10 years, what it might be. So a lot of people, when they had the choice of doing it, took early retirement. Now, that's not all positive. A lot of it is people were pushed out of jobs and haven't been able to get another one. And that is kind of disguised unemployment. But the labor market in general has been shaken up. And, and I think we should probably work with this. We should probably think more about how can we, for instance, extend working from home to benefit everyone, you know, more people than it is currently. Because it's, to be honest, it's a bit of a sort of middle class white collar thing, mostly, like for obvious reasons. It's quite hard to drive a forklift truck and say you're going to work from home. It can't happen. But if that can't happen, maybe we should think about reducing working hours for everyone. That why do we have a five-day working week? Why not a four-day working week? How can we make that happen? One of the things coronavirus has opened up is this range of possibilities about how we could organise the economy differently, and in particular, how we organise our working lives differently. And some of it's just happening anyway. I don't think working from home is going away now. You know, and coronavirus hasn't really gone away yet, by the way, but working from home isn't going away either. And lots of people are kind of using this and, and learning to, to work with that. And mostly for people who can do it, it seems to be quite popular. Similar thing with reduced working time. If you say to people, would you like reduced working time, no loss of pay? Lo and behold, everyone says, yeah, that'd be great. The difficulty that people have in their heads is, how can we do that without paying me less, right? And that's that's the bit where you get into redistribution, restructuring your economy, changing how the whole thing works. So, yes, do you think that the Scottish government is more progressive than the UK government? I mean, it's a low bar. <laughs> it's a, come on, it's a, <laughs> I feel like that's quite a softball question. Do you think it's more progressive than, than Boris Johnson and the Tories? Yeah. It's not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's kind of dealt with, I feel. Um, okay, so do you, are there are a few things that you think the SNP administration have done in Scotland that you would like to see the yeah. UK government copy? That, that's, that's a, I think that's an interesting question because the, there's, a, there's a degree to which, I mean, I just had a, just reading through, I've forgotten the, the sort of aspirational title of it, the Scottish government's 10-year plan for, you know, the economy. Um which has lots of sort of nice words in it, and then the actual content is a little bit you know, short of matching up to those nice words. But in terms of what the Scottish government has said it is committed to, things like uh, a well-being economy and the idea that we're not just going to think about GDP forever, but actually the economy sits in uh, a wider society, a wider environment, and our starting point should be what kind of society do we want to live in? How do we make the economy match up to that? Not how do we make the economy work? Let's get society to fit into it, right? And, and well-being sort of captures that. And the idea of well-being accountancy, which the New Zealand government has introduced, is, is potentially quite a radical way to think about doing economics in general and for governments to think about it. It can also be less radical. It's also just something you slap on and say, look, here's well-being. It's gone up 0.3. And it's like, well, so what? But if you take it in the round, it's like, okay, this may well involve 
exactly what I was talking about, thinking about how people work, where they work, when they work, how can you give them more meaningful flexibility about that? How do you alter your so-called work-life balance, all sorts of things. That can tie into well-being uh, or a well-being approach that's quite quite neatly. That's one thing there. The other bit is, is um, moving towards a, a Scottish uh, investment bank. I mean, as mentioned, it would be great to have, certainly for England, regional investment banks of a similar scale. I mean, just in the population size, you know, Yorkshire's bit smaller than Scotland, but you know, why doesn't it also have an investment bank like this that functioned as a bank, as a public bank, so it could do what banks should do, which is uh, create money in the creation of loans, direct those loans towards supporting small businesses, green investment, social investment of various sorts, and put that under the democratic control of people in Yorkshire or the Northeast or the Northwest or wherever it might be. I mean, that, that would be quite a, that would be a meaningful version of getting power out of Westminster and the City of London and put it into the hands of the people in those parts of the country because you give me an institution that might do something might actually have some power to reshape how the Yorkshire economy operates to the benefit of people who work there in a way that frankly Westminster governments consistently haven't been able to do there's an institutional failure there and the City of London has no interest in doing whatsoever we know that on all the figures it's why investment outside of London the southeast certainly in England's so weak I mean the interesting one in Scotland is how devolution since 1999 has changed that somewhat, that there's investment going to Scotland and Scotland has closed you know, over some period of time, the longstanding gap with the, with the rest of the country in terms of its you know, GDP per head and this sort of thing. Getting some of that into England and getting meaningful transfer of power and wealth into the hands of people outside of basically the city of London and Westminster would be a, a very good positive progressive thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, really, do you need to get banks do you need to organise banks to do that? Really, is, is, it, to me, what's at the heart of the UK's problem is, as a whole is it's far too centralised. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's built all these institutions in London. Um, the, the civil service is mainly based in London. It's not that huge in comparison to other countries. I think our public sector, 16.3% of the working population, whereas it's more like 30% in Denmark and Norway. And, um, you know, so obviously the government spends into the economy first. It's spending to pay these civil servants wages. These civil servants go out and use the theatres and restaurants around about them. And then uh, the charities want to be in London because all the civil service is in London. And then again, more businesses want to be in London because they've got more, you know, people with money to spend in their businesses. You know, I, I remember when DVLA came to, yeah. to Wales. I mean, it was a huge thing. You know, this huge bit of government infrastructure Structure finally mm -hmm. went to Wales. Um, and then, of course, obviously, with devolution, we actually started yeah. to get some proper civil servant jobs up in Scotland yeah. as well, you know. So this this over-centralisation to me seems to be at the heart of the problem. They need to get more civil service out and mm -hmm. permanent civil service posts all over yeah. the UK. If you, you know, I'm an independence activist. It's too late for me. I'm not interested in that on my level. But, um, you know, for the rest of England, certainly that needs to happen in, in my mind. Do you need banks to do that or you just need to get politicians that need to stop thinking about their country that they're running as a business? It's not a business, surely. The, the, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting you say that the, the, the Tory government we have now, I mean, it's kind of committed to some versions of this. Like, again, it says it's going to do this. So the whole talk about levelling up, which is it's basically about England, I mean, 
probably this, every so often it gets referenced into the rest of the United Kingdom, but really it ends up being about uh, regional inequality inside of England. And at least some of what they've talked about in, I mean, this isn't nothing, rewriting the rules of the Treasury in terms of how it thinks about investment. So it has a more sort of social character. It will invest in big projects that are meant to be transformative in the rest of the country. That's the, the Treasury's new rules, say something along those lines. Of course, you still need a political push to make that happen, but it's a change. They've moved some civil service jobs to, where is it, Darlington, up in, um, up in Yorkshire, actually. Uh, and there's a few other places for scheduled uh, for this to happen. They, they are doing bits and pieces of this. But they're not, I don't think, going to do it seriously because it's not just like it doesn't hurt. It actually can work quite well to move some civil service or other jobs around. I mean, Media City up in Salford has become the linchpin for a sort of media economy uh, up there now when, when you know, BBC, wasn't it, who, who moved some parts of its operation up there uh, some years ago. The, that, that it's not just a transfer of a bit of wealth or a few jobs. This is about power as well. And it's about having the capacity to make decisions that affect you and your kind of local area close to where those decisions are going to have an impact. That if we have a world, we have a world that is the world, but we have a country where currently a lot of the decisions that affect those local areas are basically taken, not even necessarily in London, they can take many thousands of miles away, a very, very long way from anyone here. And you directly feel the impact of this. That's not democratic and it's not going to turn into the best things for your area. New Labour had a, a, had a, attempt at a solution to this which is basically just go okay we'll let the city of london carry on we'll let it off the leash it's got an independent bank of england light touch regulation as they called it financial services boom and all we do is kind of scrape a bit off the top and uh, and put it into uh, and, and spend it on some public spending in the rest of the country right so, so you sort of redistribute for the tax um right tax uh, money that you're getting there that's fine for as sort of for as long as the city of London is in fact booming. When it crashes, you get the exact opposite, which is you suck all the money out of the rest of the country and pile it into the city of London to to keep the thing on the road. That's what austerity boils down to, right? So, so this isn't in any way a long term sustainable way of doing things. So you have to transfer power as well as wealth. So that does mean institutions like banks and local banking institutions as a way because banks are powerful. Like if you have a bank, you can you can actually start to change how your economy operates around what that bank does. So you have a bank and it has a public mandate, uh, a public service mandate. You say this utility is there to provide for small businesses, jobs locally, green investment, whatever it might be. That's a powerful tool you can have. And if you say this is under some form of democratic control, it's even more powerful. That's how you're going to reshape these uh, these these places. But I think it's also just a direct need for. Yeah, a transfer of wealth. I think we need a wealth tax and the proceeds of that wealth tax have to be spent outside of. I say London, I mean, London does have huge inequality. And it, it sometimes gets used as shorthand. People sometimes forget this, but really it's a, it's a little bit of London geographically that's making this happen. And a few people attached to this, but there needs to be a redistribution across everybody else from the massive piles of wealth that have grown up in particular uh, during, during the COVID crisis. Very good paper. I mean, by the way, the, the acceleration uh, and growth of the wealth of the wealthiest during during COVID is is, is extraordinary to behold. What happened? Whilst everybody else, whilst the whole world is basically suffering, people at the very top were doing exceptionally well out of this, like better than they had done for the years beforehand, and they were doing well during the years beforehand. Very good paper by LSE and, and Warwick economists that, that says you know one percent tax on on millionaires, which is one point seven percent tax on millionaires, raises two hundred fifty billion pounds uh, in Britain. I mean, that's a huge sum of money. You can even do it as a one-off. You just say, okay, you've done very well during COVID. We'll take that as a one-off and it's going to go into long-term investment. You set up a sovereign wealth fund. 
which is something we should have done years ago. You, you build institutions at a local level, like new banks, that can make that happen. You, you can do all of this, but you need to have a bit of thinking about actually redistribution is good and necessary, rather than like, oh, we can't do that because they're all wealth creators and the rest of us have to sort of tag along with it. Yeah, but the, the, I mean, really, the, the the government doesn't need to tax in order to spend. Okay. But what it doesn't, why it does need to tax, is for behavioural problems. And uh, you know, I, I, for example, there's some new legislation going very slowly through the House of Commons, too slowly, really, to help with the the nefariousness of uh, Russian money investment here. And uh, you know, it, it's all very well putting the bill through, but HMRC has been decimated. Mm-hmm. If you don't actually have the civil servants in place to enforce, then it's, you know, you can write as many bills as you want, but if there's no staff to make it happen, the enforcement's not going to happen and people are just going to slip through the net and then become super rich and then that's going to come back as dark money and it has done already and we're all, we've already been affected by this and so has the last, you know, the Trump presidency is because of that as well. Um, I think people in this country are, are, are asleep at the wheel and not really understanding why you don't want the rich to be too rich. There's a very serious reason why you don't want them to be too rich. It distorts uh, everything else you can think of, right? I mean, there's a, there's a basic sort of injustice about this, but there's there's exactly as you say, there's the risks to how democracies function when you have very large concentrations of wealth that are beyond public oversight, and and if you stash everything in a tax haven, that's kind of fundamentally what's happening there. So, and, and look, the, the Russian oligarch issue is is the most obvious sort of public version of this. You have variants of that problem of the the sheer volumes of cash people might have seen. It was the Sunday Times expose uh, a couple of weeks ago on the, the amount of money that very rich people were putting into the Conservative Party effectively for access to senior ministers, including the Prime Minister. Right? That, that's what's happened when you have large concentrations of wealth. It distorts how your politics functions, and not in a good way, not in a way that, that is to the benefit, obviously, of, of most, most people. I'd just say on, on taxing, I think, it should be, I, think people, I think we should be quite careful about whether or not you you need to tax or not i mean there's a sort of there's a particular issue that once you have a tax in place and it is providing funding for a service over a period of time or at least the funding that's coming in here is kind of matched to the services that you're also providing because like i said the technical level government doesn't actually get your money in and then go off and spend it it spends the money and then it sort of gets in some money from elsewhere at some other point it's not like one big pot of cash it spends out of it's it's just not how it works um but if it has the tax coming in, that's always something that's there that this government can point to and any future government knows is there. And it makes it harder to say, OK, we're going to cut this spending because the tax is there. So you remove some of the arguments around debts and deficits that are otherwise start to get built in. So, for instance, when you had the 2008 crisis, um, the rise in the deficit, unfairly, did get used by the Tories as a way of justifying austerity. Now, austerity is something they probably more or less bunch of them wanted to do anyway, right? But nonetheless, it was used as a very, very good reason, as far as they're concerned, to cut away at spending. Whereas if you've got the taxes there, that reduces the sort of political impact. So, you know, on a deeply fundamental level, the, the, the government doesn't need to tax mm-hmm. to spend. But the, the you know, saying that you need to bring down the deficit mm-hmm. by charging the poorest people that on national yeah. insurance, and meanwhile, letting very rich people get away with because you're not enforcing, um, you know, taxation upon them because you've decimated HMRC and there's no mm-hmm. enforcement exactly. of taxation. 
is it, it's just completely crazy. And, and I think a lot of people are starting to become more aware of that now. I think actually this war has probably highlighted it quite a lot. I, know, I don't know if you realise there's, there's a guy who's written a book called Moneyland, uh, mm -hmm. James Bullough. And, you know, he's been on uh, Scottish radio twice recently speaking about his book. And there, there's there's another book coming out about this as well. So more and more people are starting to get aware of just how toxic this yeah. this dark money is and also just how toxic it is for our society. When, you know, these the small amount of people become very rich. And not only is it toxic for our democracy, the other thing it's really toxic for is for the environment because mm -hmm. their elite mm -hmm. spending is causing a big problem when they're, they're jetting forward and backward or whatever it is they're spending money on and sometimes they're spending on mon money on things that are completely ridiculous and and they don't need and it's it's yeah. all about status and and this is this is a, this is a sickness in our society really oh i agree with you no no i agree with you completely uh, uh, about that that the the environmental impact of the very rich is massively larger than you know the the, the environmental impact of, of for example, the poorest fifty percent of humanity in Oxfam now regularly produces uh, studies around. I think so. Like every year, they do a sort of assessment of this, and every year it comes out the same that it is a tiny fraction of humanity whose whose consumption is having this overwhelmingly disproportionate impact on the environment, and, and that's climate change most obviously, but then lots and lots of other resources being uh, used up there. I mean, distribution of flying, I always find incredible. Like the the number of flights that are taken that is are taken basically by the top sort of 10% of the population is far in excess. Most people every year uh, don't, act, most people will either fly once or not at all. And then you've got a tiny number of people who are taking frequent flying, it's business trips or it's second homes elsewhere in Europe, for example, that they're taking frequent flights. And that is a huge contributor to the overall impact of flying. When most people it's like, you either don't fly or it's once for a family holiday. So, so you can see this creeping out everywhere and it's exactly that inequality impact that turns up also in the environmental impact. So I completely agree with you about that. Let, let's go back to kind of like 20, 2016. Um, right. Let's say um, John McDonnell was chancellor uh, and, and you, were, you were advising him. Um, would he have done these three things that Rishi Sunak has done recently? Would he, and, and what are your thoughts on um, right. eat out to help out? Come back oh, God, to that. Yeah. <laughs> Cutting back on the integrated rail review and rising uh, and the increase in uh, national insurance so first one eat out to help out was that a good idea was that something you would have advised That's the chancellor it's terrible it was obviously a terrible idea i mean this is the thing it's like before like, okay we're in a pandemic so you're going to go and encourage people to do something that we know is kind of risky and this is well in advance it was well in advance of the vaccine which i find incredible also it's just like off you go you know it's sort of psychological mechanism to try and uh, get people to think everything's back to normal. Uh, there's a study, again, it's Warwick, a research at Warwick, that this had a material impact on the number of infections, as you'd expect, and therefore on the number of deaths. And we spent money subsidising people to go and do something dangerous, which has this impact on the number of people actually die of coronavirus on the other side. It's disastrous policy. And, and it doesn't seem to have been stuck onto Rishi Sunak quite as much as it should have been. You know, he put his own literally signature on the thing. It should be him that this is pinned to, because that was a stupid, stupid thing to do. And he should not be able to escape from the consequences of it. I think it's a perfect example of someone thinking that they know better than than experts and, yeah. uh, uh, you know, completely abusing their position to be seen to be wanting to do something. Yeah. I think he was doing that to show that he had some control. OK, second one, uh, cutting back on the integrated rail review and the expenditure in the north of England. No, absolutely not. I mean, the... 
I remember John John made several speeches. It was a big commitment to, from the Labour Party to at the time to do this. It was to you know, fundamentally shift the balance of power and wealth uh, towards working people. And at one point, he was talking about the biggest transfer of power and wealth to the north of England since the Industrial Revolution was was the line, which I've seen various Tory ministers now try and talk up when they had their levelling up reports out. This sort of thing. But unlike the Tories, you match this up with actual spending. And to be honest with you, when you have Interest rates, as they were in 2017, are still actually barely above this now. Interest rates for government are about the lowest in human history. Right? It's, it's pretty much people are paying you, if you're the government, to borrow money from them. So that is the point at which you definitely go out and invest in things like overhauling uh, railways in the north of England and the rest of the country and renewables and a whole bunch of other things that you should pretty much be spending money for the long term on. I mean, the state of railways is, is notorious uh, in England in particular, but it's it's crying out for investment. So, of course, you go and do that. And, of course, you don't say, let's have a big old cut or, you know, let's talk this up and then not deliver enough money to make it happen, which I think is pretty good. <laughs> and the third one, the rise in national insurance. No, of course not. No, I think uh, I think Labour did oppose it, which is the right thing to do, and we'd opposed it. God, what was it? I've forgotten his name. That's that <laughs> tells you something about Philip Hammond, who was uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer back in 2017, you know, tried something similar, and we opposed that then. It's a tax on working people, and you're exactly as we discussed, just letting a whole load of extremely wealthy people scamper off into their night with their uh, ill-gotten gains. And you're doing nothing about that, but you're saying, oh, you lot all have to pay more. Uh, sorry, everything's more expensive. Here's another tax on you to pay for the NHS. It's absolute nonsense. Labour did it in 2002, didn't they? They did, and that's partly why the Tories now think it's a bit of a, a decent wheeze, because they think that people will notice the oh, because Labour did it in 2002, and people sort of didn't notice. If you put up income taxes, the Tory thinking is, oh, everyone will notice you put up income tax. You can't do that. You do national insurance contribution. People somehow feel different about it, so they won't notice. But that's in 2002. The economy's go growing. Uh, the Employ unemployment is coming right down. Wages, in particular, are going up. Right, that that's the situation. Then it's not like it is now when the economy is in a really weird place. Uh, wages are going nowhere other than south, and um, you know jobs are kind of scattered and a bit weird. Nobody really knows, knows what's going on with the labour market, and everybody's scared about the future because they all know a whole lot more inflation is coming down the line at them. So of course people are going to react differently, and there ought to be a hue and cry over national insurance contribution rises. It's nonsense to say. Workers need to pay for this whilst you're letting people who, who profited wildly during uh, coronavirus in particular to get away scot-free. That view from Scotland is this is a perfect example where we see a Labour administration doing something very similar to a Conservative administration and that nat using national insurance as a tax on the poor, poor to fund to fund to explicitly you know explicitly this has been taken from you to fund something where we all know that they don't need that money and over the last six months i've been you know um, looking through labor politicians feeds to see the the ones who are going to raise their above uh, their heads above parapet to say we do not need this we can we do not need to tax to spend but i can't find a, a single senior labor politician who believes or is happy to say that governments can run and should run a bigger deficit to pay for the things that the government the government needs and that's a really weird position i'm sure for you have been someone on the left but from scots who are progressive looking at the choices that we have in westminster it really does look like those kind of you know that that muddy purple rather than the blue and and, and the red do you have a similar perspective to that i think there's, there's, there's something interesting that's happened which is that the deficit and the national debt have really fallen away as a discussion at this point in time 
I mean, if you take the period from, God, I mean, it's basically from 2008 onwards when the Tories started really pushing this. So just immediately after the crisis, they responded very rapidly. Uh, George Osborne was committed to Labour's spending plans uh, from when he became Shadow Chancellor in, what, 2005, all the way through to 2008, uh, when the crisis erupted. And he immediately said, no, no, Labour spent too much, and the debt's too big, deficit too big. And they harp on about this for like a decade and more afterwards. Debt and the deficit, terrible, terrible. Coronavirus hits, both of them explode. <laughs> you know, government debt now as a share of GDP is, is astronomically higher than it was even coming out of the, the crisis in 2007-8, right? The deficit has grown enormously because you're paying for furlough, NHS spending, PPE. Even if you don't necessarily get all the PPE, you're paying for all, all your Tory mates to have a nice bung as it turns out, all sorts of things. But you run a huge deficit. And it just doesn't feature in political conversation at the minute. And there's this weird sort of way it's disappeared. Now, that does kind of demonstrate that it was always a little bit of a nonsense to really talk this up to the skies. And I'm sort of pleased that at least that part of the argument may well have been run, won. I mean, I think we should keep an eye on it because it can come back. But we seem to have won the argument that, OK, we're just going to spend and ignore the deficit. But I think you are right that, that there is a sort of weird consensus between the two main Westminster parties on this in that neither of them are really talking about this. Now, Labour isn't saying very much of what it would do instead, but at least they're not at the point of saying, oh, we're going to shrink the deficit as fast as possible, for example, which is clearly an option. Like if somebody had sort of been bonked in the head and decided we've got to do a kind of weird, very weird version of Blairism where you're going to do this, maybe they'd end up doing that. But I don't quite see it at the minute. It's a relatively positive shift, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really do the job. They're saying, actually, inequality is a massive problem. We're going to have to spend a lot of money on, on you know, green transformation one way or the other. You've not really got that far yet. I'm just really interested to, 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 to hear that you don't think that the Conservative government right now are talking about that we need to bring back public spend, public spending under control. And we have Rishi Sunak, who is absolutely, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I, I, we'll, find some, we'll find some quotes for the show, but is saying that we, have, we, we, we cannot keep paying for this. We have to start paying down the debt for the sake of our children. Yeah, and he says it all the time. And what does he do? He says it all the time. And what does he do? Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah but, but we're still we're still in a situation at the moment where they, they can still say we're recovering from the crisis. But, I mean, it's got the potential to super supercharge austerity when we're looking to get this deficit. I don't, I don't think, I mean, the, the entirety of the kind of sort of elite conversation about this, I think, has changed from 2008. Uh, dig, out the, dig out the Economist, which is very striking. Uh, example. The conversation in Economist in 2008, I remember because from the sins you end up reading it, is, is all about, oh, the government's too big, we're going to have to cut away at it, that's what's going to happen. Mm. Now it's like, oh dear, we have an ageing society and it's not very productive, we're just going to have to have a bigger government. Now, that doesn't mean a whole load of other things aren't going to get chiselled away at, like in particular, sort of welfare spending in various forms, seems like an obvious one. But the Tory government we have right now, and Boris Johnson did this very deliberately, very, very intentionally, as a way of like basically kneecapping uh, Jeremy Corbyn's labour, was the first thing he did on arriving in office was immediately increase public spending in things that people really like, which is schools, uh, police, and the NHS. Public spending was already rising before coronavirus. Then we had coronavirus, it goes to the roof, and now we're sort of out of the first bit of coronavirus. Bear in mind it hasn't gone away, and one of the impacts of it, you know, the health fund estimates, and this is an early estimate, would be it's another £10 billion a year in the NHS that you're going to need to pay for the long-term cost of this. So even without that coronavirus spending, Rishi Sunak has penciled in more government spending 
as a share of GDP than you had under Tony Blair. Now, it's different spending. The welfare states, the, the benefits people get are less generous. The NHS is eating up more, but able to do less because there's more demand on it. Schools funding fell and fell and fell per pupil, and they're now trying to pull it back up to what it was in 2010. So it's a different uh, distribution of spending. But now they're also chucking in, let's have a big increase in defence. So to me, this looks like the government's going to be bigger, and probably they're going to turn around at some point and say, all you people who aren't rich are going to have to pay for it. So the national insurance contributions. And if you look at what Rishi Sunak says, he tends towards something like that. I want to reduce taxes, but only when it's responsible to do so. So in other words, it's quite likely to keep taxes quite high, carry on spending quite a lot, but then always say in the future, in the future, it'll be something else. It's, uh, as I said before, it's like St. Augustine, you know, his prayer. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. I mean, this is Rishi Sunak's approach to, to fiscal conservatives. And one day I'll spend less, not now. But I truly believe that this will happen one day. And he keeps saying it. And look, it's this part of his leadership campaign. <laughs> he has to say it to the Tory faithful because that's the, the old-time religion they want to hear. What well, he actually does in practice, something quite different. Do you not think it would be better if politicians, and I know some of them do understand this, but we're upfront about the money supply and what it's for. And the money supply is to enable really people to exchange goods and services with each other and make things happen in a country. Uh, it's not to be stored up in bank accounts, just hanging about there mm. doing nothing, you know. And that's where I think the government should always be looking to tax. Where is it hanging about yeah. doing nothing? Get it back and reduce the deficit that way. You know, getting it off of people through national insurance is just so mm. regressive. Um, you know, so I'm all for them reducing the money supply and paying the deficit down. But go and get the money that's sitting doing nothing. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and get it well, back. <laughs> people I mean, people really underestimate this, and it's something that, that doesn't get spoken about enough, but the, the amount that is now sitting effectively in company, particularly big company, not small businesses, because they've been really quite squeezed for a while, but big business bank accounts is something over £800 billion now. In fact, it's approaching £900 billion last I checked. Right? It's a colossal amount of money that's literally just sitting there, uh, literally in their bank accounts. It's not like, you know, it's not, it's not a pile of gold, but it is a number in a bank that represents what those companies have to hand. And it is doing precisely nothing. Because what's happening to business investment? What's happening to the amount of pay that they're paying their workers, for instance? It's not doing anything any use to anybody. So you've got to get that money out of this hoard that has been built up. And it's accelerated in the last few years, of course, you know, in parallel with just wealthy individuals hoarding money. Companies, big companies have hoarded money as well. Get that out of those bank accounts, get it into the wider economy where it can do some use. And that's going to involve taxes, and that's going to involve a conversation about what are we doing with the resources of this society that isn't just give it all to the rich people, give it all to the biggest corporation we find, hope for the best. How much of a driver do you think the climate crisis is in changing the way that we run our economy and our society? It, well, probably not enough, I mean, to be honest with you. It's, it's, it's not had... You know, there's a lot of, sort of warm words, so to speak, around uh, these things, and a certain amount of investment has happened. You know, this Tory government is very keen to talk up how actually we've got loads of renewable investment now, and isn't that great? And this is how we're going to proceed into the future. I don't think this addresses the seriousness—not not just of the climate crisis, but a kind of wider resource crisis, uh, biodiversity loss, the whole range of impacts we're having on the natural world in one form or another that, that aren't being seriously factored into how we organise our economy and certainly not seriously factored into, into how this government is approaching this. I, I don't think the idea that you offer a few incentives to the free market and it will provide enough for all of this to happen is, is anything like serious enough. And also, incidentally, when you say some of their preferred solutions, like a rapid switch so that everybody has an electric vehicle, 
uh, themselves impose massive resource demands. Where are you going to get the lithium from? Uh, how, where are you going to mine it from in order to build all those batteries so you can run all those electric cars? It's just not particularly well thought through. So in terms of what government is doing, the British government has had some impact, and I think public concern has really pushed it. Uh, it's had the impact where, you know, you had Boris Johnson talking about this, uh, a manifesto commitment in the 2019 manifesto to this. But it's not had nearly enough to get them to actually deliver. And of course, there are now noises off from people like Nigel Farage saying, well, what's the point? You know, we shall just go fracking instead. So, so there's, things have shifted. They've not quite turned into, and we're a long way from turning into the kind of action that we actually need on this. Can I ask you, do you think that um, central banks should, uh, or rather the Treasury, should, should issue bonds at all? Uh, yes, yes, the, okay. yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the central bank does like it's just a very easy way to get hold of money, right? And, and it minimizes any sort of disruptions that might happen elsewhere. If your other alternatives are something like you can tax, well, there's reasons why you tax, and, and broadly speaking, I'm in favor of like taxing the wealthy in order to make what government does work properly. You could print money, you could, and the version of that we've ended up doing is quantitative easing. That introduces all sorts of other distortions in the rest of the system. You could probably make this work better, but there are limits to how much you can use it. So that leaves you with, with uh, government borrowing and issuance of bonds. Now, if you can borrow at a rate so low, people are in real terms going to pay you to borrow money, that's like a big signal that you should probably just go and borrow the money and do something useful with it. And, and that's what I think should happen with, with government borrowing. What about having bonds at zero interest rate permanently? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, like, we're so close to it. So you sort of wonder what real impact it would have. Like, I'm trying to remember the guilt rate at the top of my head and, and failing. It's sufficiently close, particularly if you throw in a rate of inflation, which is now 5.5%, that is not going to 0% going to make much difference if the interest rate is 1%. Right? You could try and say something like that. There is potentially government could try issuing bonds that look like this, and there'll still be demand for them. I mean, there's a, something like you might see with war bonds, for example, often might have this sort of character. Um, I noticed the EU is now talking about issuing sort of war and climate change bonds uh, to help pay for its defence spending. It's an announcement just out um, today. So, so we might see some moves in that direction, but at very, very low rates of interest for government borrowing anyway, it's not clear to me it's going to make a huge amount of difference other than maybe sending some sort of signal to the people you want to borrow off that you know, we're expecting low interest rates forever. An argument that we hear for a lot of, from a lot of Labour supporters in Scotland is that when you're not happy with the government, you change the government mm. and not your country. And, you know, that's a very powerful argument. But when we're looking at two administrations in Westminster that have got a lot of similar policies, can you see why that comment just kind of looks really outdated I can't see why. I mean, also, you, you change your government to change your country, right? So, and changing your country ought to be a bigger conversation than, than just like, OK, we'll shuffle the government around and all the institutions stay the same. Right? What, we, what we really need, and it's not just in Scotland, what you need across the whole of the United Kingdom is a big conversation about the kind of institutions we have, because the institutions we have are not delivering for most people. Right? There's a series of basically institutional failures. That ultimately gets you to a big constitutional question. If you're serious about institutional reform, you end up talking about what is the constitution of your country you're in. And there's a range of different answers to that, of which Scottish independence is a version of addressing that constitutional question. That's a decision for people in Scotland to make. For people in England, then you know, we can't really be independent, but you can certainly think about what might be the institutions outside of Westminster, new institutions that are more democratic, closer in touch with people, and have some meaningful power to change people's lives that isn't just, you know, okay, here's a mayor who can do a few things, can't do, or she can do a few things, can't do very much. It's actually like 
Can you create tax raising powers for them? Can you set up new banking institutions? Can you do these things that will really shift power inside of England? Uh, and that's that's a that's a sort of deep question that isn't just shuffle whoever's in charge at Westminster. That's like really fundamental reform. Yeah, and, and we have that potential for that institutional reform because we have two parties in power who support a constitutional change in independence. But where do the where where do the people of England go for that alternative? Where do they where, where, who do they vote for to see the institutional change that that the the country needs? Where is their democratic route to that 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 potentially different society? Well, it's it's building up ahead of steam. I mean, the Labour's. Uh, the, the campaign for a new democracy inside of Labour, in other words, basically a campaign for electoral reform, which is a kind of first step towards this, is already building up support. United's come out in favour of it. The, the previously, it's the third time I mentioned it, Andy Burnham said he supports it now. It's, it's quite powerful figures in the Labour movement, big institutions moving in this direction, because there's a recognition really that first past the post is not serving anybody particularly well. In, in particular, it's actually not serving people in England particularly well, because there's no other representation that we get of any meaningful uh, sense here. So that's one part of it. I think there's probably a, a much bigger question um, that we can start to see building up around what has happened with inadvertently, because I don't think the Tories intended this to happen at all. It was George Osborne who launched the whole round of let's create some metro mayors and, and this sort of thing. They did not intend to create thorns in their side. That was not what they wanted, but they have done that. And that's good. And that's something to build on. So I think there's a head of steam building up around the demands that the mayors themselves are raising for more powers and potentially looking to other parts of the country and building similar institutions. So it's not, it's not going to be like necessarily one big shift at Westminster. Here's your new political force that will deliver that. But I think inside the Labour Party and potentially in alliance with some of the other smaller parties, Greens and Lib Dems are the most obvious ones here. You can start to see some of that change taking place. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. I don't know if you've seen this uh, website. It's called Our Democracy. Scott. It oh, gives yeah. you the statistics on um, uh, on uh, local representation. So, for example, the area that I have, um, you have one councillor for 4,743 people. In England, that's averagely about 2,814 people. Right. In Denmark, uh, sorry, Norway, we'd have 572 people would be represented by one okay. councillor. So, wow. you know, we really, really need a lot more, more democracy. And it's no wonder that people are disillusioned. Um, mm -hmm. I was out canvassing yesterday, actually, last night, and, you know, a woman said to me, oh, I just don't bother. And yeah. it, it, it infuriates me because mm -hmm. I'm seeing... Russians on the street being put in prison because their their democracy is so mm. dysfunctional, and we have the potential to have a better democracy. But some people can't even be bothered, and I think some people can't be bothered because they feel so far away from it, and they are far away from it. Literally, they are. And it, you know, we need more subsidiarity. And it's not just that I want to see Scotland be independent. I want to see much more subsidiarity after that as well, you know. And I think you're right. In England, that definitely has to happen. And the first past the post system isn't serving anyone. But I would say to the Lib Dems and the Labour Party, you need to get yourself out of the House of Lords and just yeah. make it a non-functioning second house and 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 do that protest right now. Well, there's a lot of things that the the British Labour Party could do as well by using yeah. Scotland as this kind of wedge 
on the constitution. But for some reason, the Labour Party will not is not open to the debate of supporting in Scottish independence, and that would allow the UK to start looking at all of these. It, mm-hmm. it looks like a solution for a very different problem for for England, rather than trying to go down this much longer route to be yeah. actively supporting um, a, a constitutional shakeup in Scotland and in Wales. And would eventually lead to maybe that that mm-hmm. position where where you would like to see in the in the in the rest of the UK. Yeah, agree. No, no. I mean, the thing needs a shake up, and and Labour's I, I, for Scottish Labour to decide these things, but it's Scottish Labour's dogged commitment to the union uh, and sort of pretty much refusal to consider even within the union what it is you might do that would be different. Like what kind of radical federalism might you have? You don't want independence. Maybe you sort of go this far. Um, it, I think is a real problem for it. It's a problem where you look at, I mean, just see it from direct experience with, with Corbynism, that you had a big surge in Labour membership in Wales and in England. Like lots and lots of young people joining. It doesn't happen in Scotland. Uh, and, you know, it happens a bit, but it's nothing to like the same extent. And, and there's kind of reason for that. And it's a, it's a sort of, it's kind of built into Scottish Labour's absolute you know, refusal to go anywhere near the sets of questions that have actually engaged lots and lots of young people in Scottish politics over the last, which is probably about nearly 10 years now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so thanks we, so much. And uh, we've learned a lot from you, I'm sure, our audience. Thank, and you. Have to. thank you for having me. Cheers, Ed. Thanks so much. Bye See now. See you later. Well, Kieran, what did you make of that extended interview? I think that's our longest interview we've had, but wasn't it fantastic? James just covered so many things. What was the highlight for you? Well, there were a few highlights. I mean, I think what was really important as well is that he, again, emphasised the functions of um, commercial banking and central banking as well, that neither of you know them require, for example, um, is, you know, your government doesn't require taxes to spend and your commercial banks also don't require deposits to lend. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, these, these are important things that people really need to understand. And he confirms that again for us. Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting because because he, he said he said a few things that um, the mainstream media and also the party that he supports isn't saying clearly or if they're saying it at all. But you know, he also said that inflation is not caused by wage rises. He said, as you said, um, well, governments don't tax to spend. He said that quite clearly, and he also said then in terms of the constitution that Scotland should decide its future. So it was interesting coming from someone of the left and from the Labour Party to say things that we're not seeing in the mainstream media and from his party. And there was another one as well around around uh, quantitative easing. He said something similar, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I want to point point out to before we go to QE, because there's a lot with that, um, was that he also pointed out that there is no mandate for full employment with the Labour Party. And that was something that our previous guest was under the impression that there was. Um, that yeah. was Rhoda Grant. So- no, I think that's an important point to raise because that's probably a fairly common um, misunderstanding in Scotland that the Labour Party is for full employment. And as he said, and as the evidence suggests when they were in charge of the Bank of England, uh, there was no policy for full employment. So, yeah, so that's a good one to pick up. Let's do quantitative easing then and we'll a quantitative easing and then we'll move on yeah i mean it, it, again he confirms that you know it, it, it's it's been so toxic for a society because it's created so much inequality which anyone who, who starts to learn about economics you can see very quickly why that would happen um and you know he he confirms that um so yeah quantitative easing get yeah, more people buy more assets 
assets get um you know expanded in price and um the poorest mm. suffer yeah another perfect example of of just a, a normal economist saying things that we're just not hearing um, in the mainstream media and also from the main parties in westminster and um, what i would like to pick up was the conversation that we had around the um, income side of the equation on cost of living and again looking at what's been covered and how it's been covered Everything is about how prices have gone up, but nothing's really looking at how poor wages are. And James says that the percentage of the pie that's going to those who earn wages has been reducing over, um, well, probably since the 70s. And again, that's missing from the context when we're talking about the cost of living crisis. I think it was really important that he highlighted that. And I think it's something we should focus on is how actually do you drive wages up and not just concentrate on the other side of that, which is the prices. Yeah, and interesting that um, Andrew Bailey should do the exact opposite and suggest that everyone shouldn't ask for a wage rise, which is particularly ironic from someone who's on half a million quid a year. Um, you know, I, I, I do feel that Andrew Bailey, um, despite the fact that he's ostensibly a civil servant, uh, clearly shows his political leanings when he makes that statement or made that statement rather. Um, and, you know, I think also as well, there, it does seem to me that central these central bankers are just doing things, you know, the way that you're talking about your 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 boss, um, you know, just drawing red circles around things as if to say, I'm doing something. And um, actually thinking about what actually really needs to happen seems to be not happening. Hmm. Yeah, and and again, James um, pick pick that up, and something that's not um, in the mainstream commentary is that um, the central bank raising interest rates is exceptionally unlikely to have any impact on inflation. Uh, and most people, if they've been watching the coverage of the cost of living crisis or uh, interest rates at central banks, wouldn't have heard anyone say that. So I think it's really important uh, that we've got an economist who's covering those types of things and backing up a lot of the things that we've had our other economists on. I think it's really important. And hopefully people who are listening and watching a lot of these shows now can see that this is really consistent. It's not like we are picking these random people from the fringes. A lot of the things that we're seeing, the narrative of the show is being backed up by a whole variety of, of different economists right across the planet. So hopefully that's coming through on the things that we're covering. Yeah, I mean, you know, like politicians, journalists, you can't expect them to be experts. But again, over and over again, it, it becomes very irritating to hear journalists say, and again, I heard this this morning, say, oh, well, we'll we need to have this increase in national insurance in order to pay for the National Health Service. Um, you know, this is just complete nonsense. And, um, you know, when journalists are not learning about this, this is a problem. So hopefully this programme can do something about that, you know, and, and bring some awareness out there to the general public and to journalists alike and say, you know, please don't accept this uh, this this line from, um, from certain people because it's not true. Yeah, and please do, if you're listening to this, please do share and comment and get this message out as widely as possible so that people are a little bit more aware of the options that we have when we're looking at government policy. Well, the last thing that I wanted to cover was, I suppose, um, speaking to someone from the British Labour Party, um, or certainly from the Labour Party who's based in England, James seemed to have what you would call a very reasonable 
approach to a potential Scottish referendum. And he said if people of Scotland want it, they should be able to vote for it. And he also said that he could see the appeal. And the final comment he made in the interview there was he thinks that Scottish Labour, by not looking at this, have kind of hum hamstrung themselves in terms of looking like a progressive party. So I thought it was really interesting that the perspective that we would expect from the Scottish Labour Party is coming from someone from outside of the Scottish Labour Party. And it was just really interesting that that reasonable view was in the Labour Party. We're just not hearing it in Scotland. And I certainly feel if we did, Scottish Labour would be in a much stronger position to be able to argue for the progressive policies that they want in Scotland, rather than just having this completely dogged denial of the potential for independence to deliver the types of policies that they support. What's your view on that, Kieran? Yeah, I mean, I, it's not just that that's a problem with the Labour Party. There's a there's a whole host of illogical things coming from them and Anna Star Wars' um, support of nuclear energy in Scotland. This is just illogical. You know, we can have a turbine, a underwater turbine energy up and running very quickly. We have the expertise here, yet uh, he's supporting trying to bring in nuclear, which we don't need, and it would take years for it to get up and on, on stream anyway if you were a supporter, whereas th these these underwater turbines, this can happen much faster. So again, another illogical um, viewpoint from Scottish Labour that I just don't understand where they're coming from. And there's also, of course, that, that that's firm belief in Trident, which, again, just does not chime with the vast majority of their members um, and certainly people in Scotland. Um, another thing I think is a, a very timely right now as well is that he again, he pointed out that Ofgem is um, a subsidiary, you know, it's a part of government, um, as is the oil and gas uh, UK, which has changed its name now since we, we went to court against them. Um, you know, these these. Um, arm's length parts of government are frequently painted by politicians as being separate from them. You know, it's a political decision to take off the price cap. This is a political decision. The politicians we have in Western and Westminster at the moment have decided to make your bills more expensive. This is this is what's actually happening. And they're painting it as if they have no control over it. And this mm. is something that really people have to be cognizant of and be aware of. My, my final thoughts are one of the comments that I often have when we speak about uh, economics is that um, I think James said quite clearly that tinking around the edges of our economy is not going to fix the huge problems that we have. And I think this is an argument that's difficult for pro-union individuals and parties to make because all of the solutions that they're looking for all of our problems are really small you know put the tax up put the tax down you know maybe invest here maybe invest there but really if we want to change fundamentally change the problems that we have in our economy we've got to look at shifting the paradigm and the only really way to do that is for the inst big institutional constitutional change. And I only think that's going to come with independence for Scotland. And as I said to James off air, and that will help the rest of England realise that the levelling up agenda has to happen through a fundamental change of institutions, not just by you know giving a little bit more money to the North for its railway infrastructure. So it was really good to see James back that up, that he can see that fundamental change is needed. I would love Scottish Labour to look at that and think, well, how do we make fundamental change in our economy without 
institu huge institutional change and constitutional change. That's the challenge for anyone who wants to come onto the show and argue that for um, for, for Scottish Labour off the unionist side, for sure. But that's my final thoughts. Kieran, do you want to give me news before we say goodbye to our listeners and those watching? Um, I think another important thing that I'd like to bring up as well that he was he pointed out the inflation you know is not caused from things happening in within the UK you know and you know he brought up for example the drought in Taiwan and I think it's really important again to look away from the mainstream headlines um, you know and 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 which often paint things as being our fault somehow <laughs> and uh, and we need to look further afield and 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 just be challenging. Um, what, what mainstream both journalists and, and politicians are saying as well. It's really important that w that we stay as knowledgeable as possible to to challenge the political class as much as possible. Yeah, and that's the reason for this show. Kieran, thanks very much for um, for joining us for the interview and for doing the summary. And to everyone listening and watching, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye for now. Bye for now.